history is not melodrama with perfectly good people and perfect. It's it's tragedy, and so when you have these ancient wars and fights and everything, uh, the people who feel that they have lost or on the losing end tend to romanticize their cause or or they contextualize their defeat as victimhood. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with Pins the Podcat and the whole gang. You might be able to see Mishka the Vishla's snoot down here. And the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 191. And this episode is with Victor Davis Hansen, who is a military historian, a classicist, and a political commentator. He's also the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Residence in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford University. And this episode is the second in an installment that is quite basically chronicling my attempt to remedy the deficit in my understanding of the Israel-Palestine conflict because it is clearly one of the most important things going on in the world right now and until about a month ago I knew absolutely nothing about it. So in the last episode I spoke with the Marxist economist economist Richard Wolff about his views on the situation and why that leads to his unequivocal support for Palestine and in this episode we're turning to the other end of the spectrum. So Victor is absolutely an, an outspoken and highly revered voice in American conservative circles. And he has a wide body of knowledge of history, military strategy, politics, and then even the classics. So with all of this taken into account, we look at the basic questions of who has the right to the disputed land, whether the Jewish people are entitled to a state, how the Israel-Palestine debate is manifesting itself on college campuses, and in particular Stanford, where both of us are. And then Victor addresses the questions of whether Israel is an apartheid state and whether it's committing genocide, which are both very heavy uh, questions. And as I've already mentioned, the last episode was with Richard Wolff, where you'll get a, a very different, pretty much opposite perspective. And then the episode after this will be another uh, very different view on the situation. So a couple of final things to note are that this is Victor's second appearance on the show. And in episode 112, we talked all about his most recent book, The Dying Citizen. And you can keep up with Victor on, on Twitter, through his website, and on his podcast, The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Links to all three of which are in the description. And then finally, there is now a Patreon for this show, Robinson's Podcast. Uh, there's a link also in the description. If you'd like an ad-free feed and show notes slash just to support. So reviews, comments, subscribes, likes, all these things are always great. I happen to be wearing a, a Robinson's Podcast t-shirt, which you can also find uh, on the interwebs. But now, without any further ado... I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. One of the reasons I think this topic is so fascinating 
Israel and Palestine is that it has countless, really countless, significant interconnected components. And, and figuring out where to start is a problem in and of itself. So, I mean, there are questions of religion and land rights and warfare and racism and history and politics. But I think we have to start with some serious basics. Yes. And I'm wondering, what are even the two sides, if there are two sides of the conflict? Is it Israel and Palestine, Israel and the Middle East, Jews and Arabs? How do you look at this? Well, uh, it that area, because of its strategic location since antiquity, has been very settled. So Jew, the Jews of contemporary peoples have the have the oldest uh, in occupation and habitation, whatever term, I don't want to use a loaded term, but they were the longest resident. And they were dispersed uh, by Roman authorities throughout Europe and the, what was in the Roman Empire. And then uh, you could say that the Byzantines inherited it and they lost it to the rising Islamic armies from the Arab world. And that was fought back and forth during the first, second, third, and fourth crusades. And then it was more or less uh, in the hands of the Byzantines, and that was lost in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, depending on what part of Palestine we talk about. And then they had the longest occupation, 300 years, by the Ottomans. And they were pretty brutal anti-Arab fellow Muslims. And then they miscalculated and were on the wrong side of World War One. And then there was a British and French presence that had uh, taken up the slack. And that lasted until after World War Two. And then it, the British mandate, and had, there had been a Balfour de declaration that there would be a Zionist home of the Jewish people. But the mandate didn't really specify of where, what was what, Transjordan, Etc. Whether it was today, 1949 borders of Israel, 1947 borders Gaza, uh, and there were a series of war that would adjudicate that. 47, a big one in 56, 67, 73, and the borders were liquid. And then they were finalized <coughs> after the the Camp David Accords, where the Sinai was given back. They've pretty much been static since about 1979. And Israel uh, has expanded through the series of wars, none of which it started. You could argue that in 67, it preemptively attacked a few hours before it was going to be attacked. And it won. And so if you're a Palestinian, you feel that that area is all of yours, because at one time it had been controlled by Arabs, and that Israel is a foreign interloper in the manner, not of the Ottomans, they don't, they excuse that. In fact, Turkey is now one of its strongest supporters, but uh, in the manage of the British and French, and they also feel that in the new cultural binary and universities that Israelis are white oppressors and settlers and interlopers in a part of Asia where they do not belong. That seems to be resonant on campuses. If you're an Israeli, you would argue that uh, 
they have historical claims going back to early antiquity that uh, there has to be a homeland for the Jewish people given pogroms throughout Europe, Middle East, that the idea of refugees is a red herring because there was a million uh, Jews in places like Cairo, Damascus, Baghdad, Oman that were ethnically cleansed and were forced to flee to the United States or Israel, and they're no longer refugees, even though they were largely expelled at roughly the same time that uh, there was population exchanges in, ex uh, in present-day Israel, and that if the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza would concentrate on economic development because Gaza, for example, has got some of the most choice Mediterranean uh, real estate in the world, that there could be peace uh, through economics. That's important to understand because when we look at the October 7th uh, intrusion, massacre, murdering, it was why did Hamas at that particular time feel that it was opportune and they could go into inside Israel, indeed inside 1949 Israel, and wreck such insulations and do such damage and get away with it? And what, in other words, why had deterrence vanished? And I think a lot of it was there was an end of history sense in Israel that they had 20,000 guest workers. They were making the same pay as um, uh, agricultural laborers that were inside Israel, four times what they could make at Gaza. They had desalinization plans with the UN involved that were giving water to Gaza. Uh, the Israeli per capita, per capita income, GDP per capita income was about what it is in France and the United Kingdom, and it just soared. Uh, the Trump administration had moved the embassy. They had given, they had said that Golan Heights will not go back to Syria. They had gotten out of the Iran deal. The Biden administration had come in, tried to renew that debt, didn't work. The Biden administration had been hostile uh, to the Netanyahu government. And there was a feeling finally that the Biden administration was going to restart the Trump Abraham Accords. So there was a lot of optimism. If you read the Jerusalem Post or other dailies, 2021 and 22 and 23, there was a sense of optimism. Uh, Israel also had a policy in the intelligence services and the Netanyahu government to sort of play Hamas against the Palestinian Authority and as, as if Hamas was the more authentic, had more residents, more popular support, therefore deal with them. And then Hamas, understanding that strategy, tried to feign for most of 2023 that they were interested in economic development. Singapore was the operative word they were going to become. When you look at the United States, uh, Iran, who, who probably adjudicates whether Hezbollah or Hamas or the Houthis are belligerent or not, felt that the United States was courting it and Iran deal was willing to pay $1.2 billion for hostages. Um, it had lifted oil sanctions in early 2021, giving them about $90 billion so far of oil revenues. Much of it was used to arm its satellites. More geopolitically or geostrategically, 
Iran and people in the Middle East had seen uh, the flight from Afghanistan, the abandonment of a billion-dollar embassy, the abandonment of a huge air base. We'd invested $300 million at Bagram. 50, it's controversial, 40, 50, 60 billion dollars in array of transportation, vehicles, tanks, armaments, uh, weapons. Uh, then the sense that Putin felt that there would be no downside in invading Ukraine. We had the Chinese balloon that traversed the continental United States with near impunity for seven days. You add all of that up, and I guess what I'm saying is that Hamas thought had been planning this for some time. They thought the Israelis are very naive. They feel that we're peaceful. They feel they're prosperous. They're at the end of history. And the United States doesn't seem to be as muscular or responsive as it was in the past. And therefore, we can probably do what we did on October 7th. Well, a lot of those big issues that I mentioned at the beginning of our of this conversation just uh, came up in your response. And a few of the things that you mentioned, that the Palestinians feel that the land is theirs, that there is the perception, especially on college campuses, that Israel is a colonial state rather than a refugee state. Uh, you mentioned that Israel is potentially or ostensibly defensive in its wars. And all this points to the connection between residency, maybe even nationhood, even and and then land rights as the the source of all of this conflict, or one of them. So how do you think about who has the right to this land? Well, I didn't meet, I, I live on a farm, and I, I'd never met somebody who was Jewish until I was 18 at, when I went to university. So I came to the whole question of Israel and Jewish late in life. As a high school student, I didn't know much about it. But so my point is, I tried to look at it from the beginning as a historian. I was a classics major historian, and I when I hear these issues come up, I always ask, "What is the status globally or historically?" So we take refugees, and I heard refugees, refugees, refugees. So I said, "When when were these refugees? Um, when were they? When were they forced out of Israel during these wars in forty seven to forty nine? And I think, are all people who were forced out refugees? So were the Jew, are the Jews called, as I said earlier, are they refugees that were expelled from the Middle East city? No. Then I say to myself, after the acrimony and hatred that followed World War II, there were 13 million East Prussian Germans, Sudetenland Germans, who, for understandable reasons, because of the atrocities in Poland and stuff, they were completely ethnically cleansed from Eastern Europe, which had been German. East Prussia had been German German since the 12th century or German speaking. And so where did they go? They went back to Germany. Are they? Do they dangle the keys and say, this is my home in Danzig and it's not really Gdansk, that it's occupied by Poland? Or I say to myself, Ukraine is in the news. Well, one third of Western Ukraine was Polish speaking and Roman Catholic for a thousand years until Joseph Stalin, along with Hitler, invaded 1939 and destroyed Poland. And as part of the spoils, Stalin grabbed 
what is now Western Ukraine and declared it the Ukrainian province of the Soviet Union, Western Ukraine, and he wouldn't give it up even when he flipped sides and joined us. Are, the, are those people in Poland who had homes in um, Ukraine? And part of it was the compensation for Germans that were expelled uh, from Poland. They, Poland was given parts of East Prussia because they lost parts to Ukraine. Or I, I, you know, I lived in Greece. I visited Cyprus in 1973. The war in 74, there were 200,000 Greek Cypriots that were forcibly removed from northern Cyprus by Turkish Islamic uh, armies, if you will. Are they refugees today? I could go on, but the point I'm making is that refugees seems to be only uniquely applied as a rubric to Palestinian. And so, and then I look at proportionality. Israel's got to be proportionate when it responds. I have not heard that word yet with Ukraine. When it responds to Russia, do they say, Russia took out an apartment building, you took out a bridge in Crimea, was that proportionate? Or so collateral damage. Did some? Did anybody in the world tell the United States when we went in, and, and I was embedded in, as Iraq uh, on two occasions, and I did go to Mosul before the siege, but I did go to Fallujah afterwards. No one said to the Americans, you have to be both proportionate and you have to avoid all collateral damage. We tried to, but it was impossible since ISIS and Ba'athist and Saddamites were deeply burrowed in. And if you looked at, Fallujah looked pretty much what Gaza City looks like today. I don't hear anybody was lecturing. So I could go on, but all of these hot button terms, settler, 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 settler. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Ottoman Empire uh, settled in the Middle East? Does that mean that Arab armies swept through Berber population and Phoenician populations in North Africa and today are not the indigenous people of North Africa? The indigenous people are those who were Berbers. They were pre-Muslim and they were not Arab. Does that mean southern Spain was occupied for 400 years by Islamic settlers? And so I find all of these things disproportionate, to use their word. And, and I ask myself, why is that? And that is that I think we apply a, a, a certain status or a special uh, case. Israel becomes a special case. And I don't know whether that's a history of anti-Semitism or it's a westernized country in the middle of a 500 million person Muslim Arab Middle East, or it's enormously successful with a GDP that is only rivaled by the petroleum-fed revenues of the Gulf states. But I don't know what it is, but when I, I'm on the Stanford campus and I see people protesting every once in a while, they'll come up to you and try to offer you a pamphlet. When I ask them these questions, I have never gotten an answer. I never, I don't hear it in any of the protests. I don't hear, even the at the professorial level, I don't hear why their concern about refugees or proportionality or collateral damage doesn't extend to everything. And when I see Vladimir Putin saying that the United States is responsible for unleashing Israel, I ask myself, does anybody care that he leveled Grozny and killed over 100,000 Chechenian Muslims? Does anyone, China weighs in, does, it, does anybody say they have a 1 million Uyghur Muslims in 
forced labor camps? Does anybody in the Middle East care? So I, I don't quite understand the the asymmetry is what I'm trying to say. But not notwithstanding the the criticisms of Israel in the present or over the last six or seven decades, yes. taking advantage of your expertise as an historian and a classicist, yeah. was there historical precedence for the establishment of Israel? Should there be uh, an Israeli country there or nation? Well, it was an irredentist idea in all peoples. The Greeks had something similar, and that was after World War One, when they bet wisely on the Allies and the Ottomans bet poorly, they had dreams of recapturing Asia Minor, and that was the historically homeland. The birth of classical Hellenism was in Asia Minor. So the old city of Smyrna, today's Izmir, it swelled to a million people. And after the collapse of the Ottoman government and the young Turks were still unorganized, the Greeks went in and tried to expand that ancient population. And, and even they had ideas of making it the Megala idea, the great idea, but it, it, it didn't work. They were slaughtered by the Ottomans under Kamel Ataturk. That was a, a, an irredentist idea. But uh, in the case of the, the Jews, I think it's a little bit different. Although there are very vulnerable populations in Armenia today and Kurdistan, which doesn't exist as a nation, and Greece, they're all subject to hostile neighbors and populations, as is Israel, and they, they're always on the cusp. But they have uh, too few people to protect themselves from their neighbors who are much more numerous and more powerful. But in the case of Israel, the idea of the whole Zionist project of the 19th century was that systemic persecution of Jews throughout Europe was such that there had to be a safe place, and that was accelerated after uh, the Holocaust, where uh, of the then 12 to 13 million Jews, uh, half of them were wiped out. And there was this consensus that the only place that Jews would be safe was in the United States or in a Jewish homeland. And when people had tried to come to the United States during World War II, um, thousands had been denied entry by the Roosevelt administration, very anti-Semitic. And, and so the idea was after 1945, we've got to expand the, Bal the Balfour Doctrine and the, Jew and the mandate and work with the British. And they were willing to do almost anything. Uh, and they did, and they were very successful. But another larger, uh, I think, problem is that tr history is not melodrama with perfectly good people. And perfect. it's, it's tragedy. And so when you have these ancient wars and fights and everything, uh, the people who feel that they have lost or are on the losing end tend to romanticize their cause or, or they contextualize their defeat as victimhood or and we don't apply that. We're, we're pretty callous in the West about which particular group we consider dealt unfairly with and which not. And it usually has something to do with contemporary politics. And 
the Palestinian cause has been, I think Nathan Sharansky warned about this 20 years ago, has been glued on to the diversity, equity, inclusion agenda to such a degree that it makes very strange, if I could use the word bedfellow. So you have queers for Palestine or radical gay people supporting an agenda of Hamas, at least as it pertains to the Gaza problem, that if they were to take over uh, Israel, or as they say, from the river to the sea, there wouldn't be any rights at all for gay people. Many of them would be killed. And, or you have people from the Middle East, 300,000 students of such, who are now in the streets or on campus protesting uh, against the government of their own uh, host, the Biden administration, Biden, Genocide Joe, and all that. If they were to do that at, in the West Bank or Gaza or any Arab country, probably they would be jailed if not killed. So there's all these disconnects that people do not want to to honor. In the case of the student movement today, if you go, if you on if you're on campus and you hear somebody chatting from the river to the sea, and I think statistics and polls bear this out. If you go up and talk to them and ask them to explain, they cannot. They either do not know the Jordan River, or they do not know the Mediterranean Sea. They just chant it because they think it's socially acceptable or it's what the majority believes. And if you if they do understand it, then you ask them, what would you do with Israelis? They'd say, they got to go home. And you ask them where home is. They don't know. They don't know that people have been born there for generations. If you say to them, 21% of the population are Arabs, what happens to them? They'll finally come out and say, I didn't know that. But if they're Arabs, they're, they get to stay in the and then you say, well, you're not upset then about Israel. You're upset about Jews because they are Israelis too. So there's so many disconnects and ignorance about this issue that it, especially on campus where you wouldn't think you'd find it, given its pretensions at higher learning, that it's very depressing. As you know, the Stanford campus, I mean, I'm sure it's much less tense than other campuses, but we have uh, by the bookstore these tents of pro-Palestine occupiers and then right across the sidewalk, this big Jewish tent. And there are police officers there all the time. Yes. And we had a Stanford professor who was a mentor of Colin Kaepernick, who I think he, I shouldn't say professor, he was a lecturer. And he asked the Jewish students to go to one side of the room and leave their backpacks on the other so they would experience what he said was apartheid. I just say that because one of the mythologies of these protest groups is that they're not anti-Semitic, they're only anti-Israeli. But every time there's an incident like this, the professor or the lecturer, I should say again, the instructor at Stanford didn't say, well, I'm going to make an example of pro-Israeli people. So anybody who supports Israel, he just assumed any Jewish people could be collectively attacked. And when the Jewish students were in the Cooper Union Library, nobody of the pro-Hamas demonstrators said, we want to know who is for Israel and who is not. Or when they were hitting a pinata yelling, beat the effing what? They didn't say beat the effing Israeli. They said beat the effing Jew. So what I'm getting at is after October 7th, 
there was no more pretense that it wasn't anti-Semitic. In the past, the pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian movement said it's not against Jews, it's only against pro-Zionists. And now, I guess nobody takes much effort to disguise the fact they don't like Jews. And that's borne out statistically when the FBI director said that 2.4% of the population is now suffering 60% of all hate crimes, and that there's been a 500% increase in that incidence of attacks on Jews. So when I see these protests and I talk to people, because those protest um, areas on the Stanford campus are right between my apartment and the Hoover Institution. So every day I walk by, I have you, you encounter, you see their sloganeering written in chalk, as you've probably seen on the sidewalk. You see people there. You even see signs that say, be quiet, don't disturb the protesters. They're asleep in the tents. So, I mean, it's, it's very in your face. And the faculty is sort of, and the students are very afraid because I do stop all, I've stopped at both sides and talked to them. But I, I would say that there is not a fear of the Arab students or the supporters of Hamas or whatever term they particularly, there's not a, a fear that they are a singled out minority that might be subject to overt discrimination. There's a sense that they are the voice of the faculty and the students, and they have majority support. Whereas you talk to the Jewish group, they feel, for whatever, whatever reason, I think justified that they are targeted. And that is new. That hasn't happened before in my, my 70 years in this country. Yeah, well, maybe it's... Uh, a totally uh, stupid thing for me to do to have this interview. I mean, I talking to you, I've I've been told by professors that like I, I won't ever get a job uh, for even even if I'm being neutral, uh, which I or interviewing uh, Marxists or pro-Palestinians, just having a conversation like this, uh, a lot of. I mean, you're just not allowed to espouse or even entertain uh, non-dominant views if you're in yeah. academia. No, you can't. I, if it is any solace to you, that never ceases. So I've been at the Hoover Institution for 20 years. We have, for senior fellows, de facto tenure. But during um, the anger at the Trump administration, I was singled out for appearing on Fox News. So I had to go before the Stanford Faculty Senate along with Neil Ferguson and Scott Atlas. I don't think anybody today, once this hysteria uh, has worn off, believes that Scott Atlas's skepticism about the viability and the utility of mass quarantines was mistaken. They probably feel he's pressing it now, even though they tried to destroy him. I feel that I don't think anybody feels that the distinguished historian Neil Ferguson is. Uh, culpable of anything from a private email where he sort of jokingly said, you have to use awful research that that canceled out. I don't think anybody would even mention that today. I don't think given the number of Stanford faculty that go on to MSNBC or CNN, that the fact that I was on Fox after the election of 2020 was any big deal today. So I think a person just has to say what they have and they have to say it in a way that's polite and respectful for people who disagree with them, and they have to go on. I know that when I was in your situation at Stanford, ironically, in the classics PhD program in 19, 
uh, 75 to 79, I was told uh, the chairman, who's now deceased, called us all in and he said, you're four white males in your class. Only, I think, two of us finished the degree. Three of us finished the degree. He said, there is zero chance that you're going to get a job under the new affirmative action guidelines because women haven't been hired and now we're admitting women. And you're probably going to be the last class of white males. So we want you to sign this and tell us that we're not legally culpable advising that we suggested you would get a job. None of you are going to get a job. And not only one did after three years. So in my case, it was a double whammy because my thesis advisor said that I was also very conservative and rural. I think he used the word rustic. And he warned people about me. He said that I wasn't a typical academic. I didn't speak modern languages very well. I just read them, which I thought I passed all my exams in them. But the point I'm making is that I went out, I had no, it's pretty humiliating. I have a PhD in classics and you cannot be as a, hired as a high school teacher in your hometown because you don't have a credential. And I couldn't get a job. So I farmed for five years. But my attitude was always, you have to, to go with your strengths. So if you got a good education, what, what are your strengths? And you would try to develop and try to write, try to speak. And at some point, even if you're farming in the middle of nowhere, people will be aware that you're you're sincere, you're disinterested, you're you're trying to achieve a little excellent, and it'll all work out in the end, and you'll feel better than than if you had changed your views or adopted to the situation. And I know that whether it was at UC Santa Cruz, I, I didn't participate in the rioting of the 1970s and the campus turmoil. All my professors were leftists, and yet I felt. If I knew Greek and Latin better than the competition, they would at least have some adherence to to d disinterested evaluations, and they did. And the same thing was it true at Stanford and at Cal State Fresno. I don't think out of a thousand persons on the faculty, there was more than ten conservatives. And when I wrote Mexifornia, I remember going on campus, and the voice of Atzlan had a picture with a, a crosshair like a sniper's uh, lens with my face on it. And I went to the president at that time. I said, look, this is not just hate speech. And he just said, you wrote Mexifornia. What do you expect? And so it, it just, you in academia, you have to you just accept these parameters, I think. And it's not going to change given the nature of academia, structural in nature. I have a I've been told essentially the same thing by many faculty about uh, never getting a job for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. So I might, I don't know if I'll be farming, but I will. There's probably, always places uh, that change. Your... Yeah, I do think it's changing. So there are places, Hillsdale College, St. Thomas Aquinas, or the new University of Austin, uh, Ralston uh, there's there's starting to be alternative areas that they're not they don't want just conservatives but they're willing to hire people who are traditionalist or not part of the academic establishment. I think it's going to grow, especially after October seventh and the testimony of the Ivy League presidents. I think that is, and I think the mood of the country is now that there's something wrong with academia. If you have the three most illustrious Ivy League, all women. One a person of color, there's no 
stodgy white males up there. But if you have three enlightened people, according to the protocols of academia and the values of academia, and they cannot say in front of the nation that it's against their code of behavior to call for the destruction of the Jewish people and the genocide of Jewish people, destruction of Israel, then something's wrong. And I think there's going to be a lot of calls, not just from conservatives, but from worried liberals that something has to be done uh, to diversify academia and get different modes of thought and return it to, and we had the Supreme Court ruling about affirmative action. I think the idea that these atolls can practice certain codes that are antithetical to the Constitution, a, se a racially separated graduation or a racially separated dorm, and think that by calling it a theme house or optional or any of these things, it excuses them. Uh, I, I think those days are over. I really do. I think people are now saying, you know what? It, you can't just create your own world on a campus, not when you have tax-free endowment income, not when you get millions of dollars in federal grants, not when you rely on a $2 trillion student uh, loan subsidy industry, you know. So I think it's changing. You, you just mentioned genocide in connection to the testimony of the three presidents. Uh, you also mentioned ethnic cleansing a little while earlier in connection with Jews and the Holocaust. And I'm pretty sure, I'm not an expert on these things, but Hamas's charter calls for the genocide of Jews. And something that I'm always hearing is that Israel is engaged in genocide and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. I'm wondering what the what truth there is behind this yeah. claim. Well, the people who are making that charge are saying that sending 3,000 gunmen at a time of peace and a Jewish holiday on the Sabbath of Saturday accompanied by five to 600 opportunistic civilians who just piled on and killing 1,100 people and wounding over 4,000 and doing so in a deliberate fashion to terrorize the world's sensibilities. I mean, we haven't seen anything like that on the world stage, maybe at Defer, but mutilating corpses, mass rape, uh, decapitation, uh, slaughtering infants, burning them alive, putting them in microwaves, all, all of that. And then sending 7,000 rockets into Jewish civilian areas. And then you juxtapose that with what the IDF is doing. The IDF is responding to what happened on October 7th. And the anger of the IDF is not that it's creating genocide, but it is more effective in its response than Hamas was in its offense. For example, had those 7,000 rockets, and we're probably up to 8,000 now as we speak, had there not been an Iron Dome, and had they hit all, they would have probably killed two to 5,000 Jews. Would anybody on the campus say that that, that was wrong? No. When Israel replies, it sends 
text in some cases, drops leaflets and warns people that they are being used as shields in mosques, hospitals, uh, schools. There's 300 miles of tunnels and therefore they should vacate. I know there's not a lot of alternatives to do so. It's exactly what we did when we bombed Japan. We, we dropped leaflets. There wasn't a viable way to vacate, but we said, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do. And so are they trying to, no, they're trying to reply to October 7th and destroy Hamas, and Hamas knows that. And that's why they took 243 captives hostage, because they're using them as shields. That's why they tunnel under the ground. They've spent billions of dollars in international and American and European money to do what? To, to help Hamas, uh, for, help the people of Gaza to build their own desalinization plants. The UN built one. Do they build more? Do they, do they have an open border with Egypt because they don't threaten Egypt? No. And so I don't really take that too seriously. I regret the loss of life, but all that the, the bloodletting would stop tomorrow if Hamas just did the following. We're going to let the captives go, and we know the people who organized this murderous spree, and here they are. Here's their names, and we're not going to shield them. And here's, and please stop. The Israelis would stop in a minute. If they turned over the ringleaders of Hamas, two or 3,000 of them, and they turned back the hostages. But they won't do that. As far as collective punishment, I mean, I haven't seen any widespread anger at what Hamas did among Gazans. As I said, hundreds followed them in there to join in on the murdering. They were told there were bounties for taking captives. When they brought bodies and captives back into Gaza, and you saw the videos of the reaction of the crowds, it wasn't disgust or even neutrality. It was to try to reach the captives or the, the corpses of dead Israelis and hit them or spit at them. When I looked at the latest polls, the popularity of Hamas has gone up threefold to 75% of the people who respond to these polls that often are, are conducted under the auspices of people on the West Bank or in the region that are no friends of Israel. It shows that there's 75% support of it. So I guess I'm left with a question, what is Israel supposed to do after October 7th? Say, we're sorry, we must have provoked you. We're sorry you decapitated all of our, our, our you, you, you baked kids and you mutilated and you cut off breasts and you mass raped, raped women and then you mutilated them, you tortured them. We're really sorry that we did something that you would make you so mad and then we're just going to stop. Oh, by the way, and we'll go back to the issue of 1947 and we'll just make this all one big happy family and, and you have a, a, a fine record of allowing Jewish citizens to live in Gaza. Uh, there's 20,000 Gazan laborers who come in every day at Israel. They make roughly the same wages as anybody else in Israel for manual labor, which is four times higher than Gaza. I don't think if once Israel got out of Gaza, 2006, it's, it's, it's not occupied. They keep saying it's occupied. And it has a border with Egypt, another Arab country. And Egypt could easily open that border and do whatever they wanted with it. But it doesn't want to. There is a reason why it doesn't want to. It doesn't have anything to do with Israel. Because they backed the Muslim Brotherhood that tried to overthrow the Egyptian government. And then 
when it was elected, it tried to do things that the Egyptians didn't think they wanted, according, they had a coup. So that was an internal Arab dispute. So I don't get the argument is what I'm trying to say uh, about genocide or that they're deliberately targeting. Every war has barbarities, but dropping leaflets and texting people to get out of the way when they're living on top of uh, Hamas tunnels or they're being used as human shields while they're sending rockets without any warning deliberately targeted at Israeli uh, civilian centers in the context of what happened on October 7th. I don't see the Israelis are trying to do any genocidal thing. They're more effective at killing Hamas than Hamas is at killing them. Uh, and so that is disproportionate. But notice that we don't tell Ukraine, hey, when you hit a, a, a bridge in Crimea, we want you to tax people and drop leaflets because even though it's Russian-occupied, there are a lot of people in that neighborhood that might be hurt. And oh, by the way, we want to give you, we don't want you to be disproportionate. We don't think, we don't want to give you F-15s or Abrams tanks or HIMARS because that's, they're superior to what Russia has, and that would be disproportionate. Or we don't tell Zelensky, if you dare suspend an election or you dare call martial law, we're going to call you a fascist and we're going to drop all aid to you. We only do that with Israel. So it's, it's a very different asymmetrical case. Yeah, I did over the summer and um, an over two-hour episode, I think, with your colleague Norman Neymar yeah. on the world history of genocide. Yes. And we talked all about the the communist genocides, the uh, Mongolians, uh, the, some of the African genocides. And the comparison that I, even if you believe, and there are, there are many diverging uh, stories in the media, but even if you believe the most severe of them, to compare what is happening in Gaza to the Holocaust, it just seems uh, absurd. It's obscene. And uh, especially to, to raise that false uh, comparison when the side that they're supporting, the protesters are supporting, has just killed more Jews and wounded more Jews in one day than any single day since the Holocaust and deliberately was planning to do that. If they want to have a war with Israel, then they could have invaded, as they did in 73, the Egyptians and the Syrians. In the 73 Yom Kippur War, they had the same surprise. And by the way, this was timed 50 years to the Saturday from the Yom Kippur War. They caught the Israelis yapping, napping. They went in, the Egyptians and the Syrians. They had a conventional fight over strategic ground. Uh, there were some atrocities and there were executions of a few Israeli soldiers and vice versa probably, but the war was not conducted against civilian. It was a conventional war. Hamas is wi willing to do that, but they don't. Or it's willing to make its cause to the Arab world, Jordan, Syria. They can say, look, we want to wipe off Israel off the map. Why don't we conventionally invade like you did in 73? For four days, you were victorious. 
they don't want to do that. They want to kill women and children and mutilate them and desecrate them. And then they want to claim victimhood at the same time. And when you, when you put that in the perspective that they are recipients now under the Biden administration of resumption of USAID, they get hundreds of millions of dollars from United Nations. The Gulf monarchies and the European EU probably well over a billion dollars. And you look at what they've done with that money. They've got the most sophisticated subterranean city in the world, but it's only for a select few. They have the four or five top leaders of Hamas or billionaires at Sconce and Gutter and Beirut. They could have easily had cheap, affordable housing, a modern transportation system, desalinization plants, plenty of water. They could have, they have offshore areas off Gaza. They could have had mutual consortia with Egypt or Israel and developed their natural gas rights. They could have done anything, but they didn't want to do that. It's a nihilist cause, it really is. And it's opportunistic here in the United States. It's uh, why are these demonstrations breaking out? And it's because in the last 20 years, we've, we, we've had tens of thousands of Middle Eastern students on golf scholarships or often pay the full tuition, if not always. We've had fun, uh, Qatar, Saudi-funded Middle Eastern studies programs. At the same time, we've seen a radical drop in Jewish enrollment, Jewish-American enrollment. It used to be 25 to 30% of the Ivy League in places like Stanford. But under the new proportional representation affirmative action statutes or protocols prior to George Floyd, but after George Floyd, what you would call repertory admissions, in the case of Stanford, as you know, on the Stanford website, they give you an ethnic breakdown of the incoming admitted class, and it says 20% white. And with the abolition of SAT scores and probably competitive ranking of GPAs based on the quality of the high school education, it's very, very hard for a white male and especially Jewish students to come. So their numbers have plummeted. At the same time, Middle Eastern students have increased their profile. At the same time, the so-called woke movement has made people especially receptive to this Palestinian cause. And the result of it is something that, that no one ever thought would happen in the United States. Nobody ever thought that the president of Harvard could not at least say that people who call for the destruction of Israel and the genocide of the Jews, Jewish people would be subject to the same type of statutes that she applies if you say the wrong pronoun or you say something untoward about a marginalized group like blacks, Latinos. And they have been expelled. There's been people put on suspension. There's been admissions that were withdrawn at, at all these schools for just that stuff. And yet, in the case of Israel and Jewish students, they make a special exception. I don't know why that happened. It wouldn't have happened 20 years ago, but I think it reflects the vast changes in the student body and faculty profile for the last 10 or 15 years. In the little time we have remaining, there are a couple of other hot-button yes. topics that I really wanted to get your uh, your take on. And a few minutes ago, another uh, buzz term you mentioned is apartheid. And there are lots of parallels drawn between 
Israel and South Africa. And I'm wondering if you think, or what one, what the uh, contended basis is for these uh, drawn parallels and whether or not you think that they're actually substantiated by the facts. Well, the first time I ever went to Israel, I asked to go into the most, uh, the hot spots of Israel, Gaza, West Bank, and I was accompanied by the IDF. And we drove parallel to the trajectory of what was then Ariel Sharon's wall. It was sort of like the Trump border wall with Mexico. And I got up to the northern part of the projected trajectory, and there was a big demonstration. And the demonstration was over rumors, and I didn't know what it was about. Of a, It was an Arab community, and it was about the rumors that the wall might detour actually into... 19, pre-1967 Israel. In other words, it would detour and give up acreage, square miles, to the Palestinian Authority, which would include this village. And they would do that co through coercion, no doubt, so they could get a, co a roughly comparable area in Jerusalem. Quid pro quo. So I asked the IDF people, why is everybody protesting? And he said, because they do not want to be under the Palestinian Authority. I said, but they're Arab and they're Muslim. He said, they do not want to be under the Palestinian Authority. And then he outlined the wage disparity, pensions, civil liberties, rights of being a Arab Muslim citizen of Israel versus being an Arab Muslim citizen of the Palestinian Authority. And it was stark. And it wasn't just me or he that noticed that people did not want to go back to the Palestinian Authority. They would rather live in Israel. That's impossible under an apartheid regime. And people will say all sorts of things, but you can see it in the protest today. Middle Eastern students are screaming and yelling in support of regimes that have no civil rights whatsoever. And they're attacking in the most strident terms the only country in the entire 500 million person Arab Middle East that has civil liberties and tolerance for people of different sexual orientations, races. And this idea of white settlers Israel, when you go to Israel, and I've been there numerous times, it's more diverse than, not, than Arab countries. You don't see as many blacks. You don't see as many people all over. There's Ethiopians, there's Somalian Jews. There are people all over the world are there. You see Europeans. You can see somebody who says, I'm Israeli or Jewish, and they're blonde and blue-eyed, or they're, they're black, and there's no discrimination whatsoever. So I don't quite understand that term, apartheid. Are there security worries about people after the suicide intifadas? Yes, of people who were in Israel that blew themselves up and were more likely to be Arab than not? Yes. And so there are, were some security measures taken. But when I drive through uh, Arab communities, especially in northern Israel, and I compare what I've seen in Jordan or Egypt or Syria or Iraq, or Tunisia, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. I've been to all these countries. I would say that in terms of security, 
prosperity, that the 21% of Arabs that live in Israel have a higher standard of living of anywhere except the Gulf monarchies, where that's oil-fed revenue. I just don't see it. And I was going to say, I'm going to speak very roughly because I don't have the knowledge base or the, the statistics in front of me, but my understanding is that, in again, roughly, in apartheid South Africa, the minority of, let's say, like 10%, the 10% white population ruled quite oppressively the yes. 90% black population. Whereas in Israel, contrary to what I think is this idea that it's a hyper-Jewish Orthodox state, it is a, a secular state uh, where the 80% Jewish population or maybe I should say the 20% Arab population has the exact same rights and potential for representation in parliament and so on as the Jewish population, again, opposed to uh, the the government of Gaza, which yes. I understand There's a lot rules of, by that, Sharia that, law. That's absolutely true. When you talk to Israelis or you go and study the country, the biggest problem about civil liberties and civic participation that's asymmetrical is not Arab-Israeli. It's Orthodox Jew versus non-Orthodox. So maybe 40, 30 to 50 percent, depending on how you gauge it, of Israelis are completely secular. For them, being Jewish or being Jewish observant is sort of like many Jews in the United States. It's something they do occasionally. But strictly Orthodox Jews are not have not been subject to military service. So a lot of uh, Israelis say to them, well, you people are strident about your Jewishness and you uh, don't want to make the necessary co concessions with the Palestinians, and yet we, secular Jews, are the ones that fight more per capita than you do. And so when I hear that there's separate rules, yes, there's separate rules, and the secular Jews feel, and I'm not that sympathetic with them, but they feel they're being discriminated by the fact that they're not orthodox and can claim religious exemptions, and therefore they imperil themselves and in fact die in larger numbers. And that's behind a lot of the anger that we saw this summer with the civic disruptions and protests against the Netanyahu government that most of those people were on the left and secular, and they felt that they were being uh, inordinately put upon, whereas this, the observant Jews were not. And so I shouldn't say observant, I mean orthodox, orthodox, uh, traditional, uh, traditionally observant. So there were t there's a lot of tensions in Israel about particular classifications that have nothing to do with Muslim or Jewish or, or anything. If you talk to Christians, which is about, of the 21% that are Arabs, about 10% or so are Christian, and you ask them when there's nobody around you that can hear, did you feel safer in Bethlehem or did you feel safer up here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee inside Israel as a Christian? It's not even close. I'd never heard one person say they felt safer as a Christian in the West Bank. In fact, when you look at Christian populations in Beirut or Syria or the West Bank, they are diminishing at a rapid rate because they feel there's zero uh, religious tolerance. 
And all of what we discuss is known if, to anybody on a campus that wants to take just an hour of research, and they know it. So what fuels this anger is not these issues that we've talked about, apartheid, disproportionality, colonialism, collateral damage. It's a, it's a deep-seated hatred of Israel and the Jewish people. And a lot of it is, is out of envy, as it always is with anti-Semitism. It's the idea that these people are clannish, or they have a clique, or they put this high premium on commerce or education or professional, and they make all this money, and they're not, they're not sympathetic to us, and they, they overachieve. I, I've heard that my entire life from anti-Semites. And that's pretty much what is behind this new manifestation from the left. When I was 12 or 14, I never met anybody who was Jewish until I was 18. I was rural Central Valley. But there was always the mysterious Jew that some of the fruit farmers would say, well, I can't, make, I can't sell my peaches or plums because the Jews in New York manipulate the fruit market. And we get two bucks a box and they sell it for 20 and they pocket it. So I, when I got to UC Santa Cruz, I thought, where are all these Jews? I want to see who they are that, that supposedly stole all our money. And there was a lot of Jews. I didn't see it. But that was the idea. It was on the right is what I'm trying to say. And now, and it was easy, like, easily identifiable and correctable. Now it's on the left and it's insidious and, co and it's embedded within all sorts of pretensions of these cultural binaries, victim, victimizer, oppress, oppress. And they have taken on the mantle of a white Western oppressor. And that means that the people who call them names and demonstrate are exempt because under that binary, the oppressed and the victimized cannot be racist or anti-Semitic. That's just the way that the university works. So they say things and they do things that would be outrageous to chase people into a library or to hit a person, uh, a facsimile of a Jew and say effing Jew on a campus and they feel that they're going to be exempt and they're absolutely correct. They have been exempt. And the only time that a university president really said anything about what was going on was in fear after uh, Liz McGill, the former Stanford law dean at the University of Pennsylvania, was forced to resign. Then all of a sudden you saw a spate of not in my name, we don't do this, this isn't who we are type of boilerplate presidential memos to the faculty and students. But before that, they were more afraid of the majority opinion on campus, the Middle Eastern students, and that's where the center of gravity was, and they reacted according. Well, Victor, I have tremendously enjoyed uh, both of these conversations that we've had on my show now. So again, thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for uh, lending your expertise and your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.